The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hi there. George Hook here with The Right Hook on News Talk Tuesday's version. And if there are things you missed on the show, or indeed if you missed the show in its entirety, here are some of the highlights. I'm joined now by uh, Barrister Darren Lehan and also Shane Coleman, News Talk's political editor, because, of course, the big story is that legal advisors have told Irish Water there is no possibility under European law which would enable the state to suspend or scrap water charges. Darren Lehan, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, Drew. Uh, now, uh, doctors die, uh, no, patients die, doctors differ. It's a bit the same with barristers. You guys can never agree. Uh, do you agree or not? Uh, I wouldn't agree with that. The first thing I'd say is we don't know what the nature of the full advice was. All we've got are snippets reported in the newspapers. But I would disagree with the notion that you couldn't scrap water charges as a matter of European law, because ultimately, when we're talking about water charges, we're talking about European law. Um, There was a thing called the Water Services Directive, which came into effect back in 2000. And the purpose of that was to establish a framework for the protection of water, basically. And built into that was the principle of the polluter pays. And that's where water charges come from. And the relevant article of that without getting too technical has two main bits. The first bit is it says, you know, the polluter pays principle in terms of levying charges that have to be fair but the second bit is what was known as the Irish derogation and this said that um, provided that certain um, minimum kind of standards were met you could opt out of water charges and those um, can be broken down as follows. One the member state had to make a decision that that not to apply water charges that decision had to be in accordance with established principles and there were a number of other things as well but it's established principles is the key thing here because um, on one reading established principles can change over time but there was a parliamentary question in Europe asked funnily enough by an Irish um, MEP I think it was Alan Kelly and uh, in the reply that came back the European Commission official very carefully said it's established principles at the time that this EU law came into effect so back in 2000 um, Okay alright we buy all that yeah. do you think it could be done the two whiz kids that Irish water paid big bucks because barristers get get big bucks um, they, those whiz kids said no you can't do it now, if it's as simple as you say, yeah. how did the two expensive whiz kids get it so hopelessly wrong? Well, again, I haven't read their actual opinion, and I'm sure it's very detailed, but there was a reference in the newspaper to it saying that once you decide to scrap your established principle and change it, as we did here when we, you know, we had abolished water charges back in the 90s, uh, we kept that abolition for a while, and then we remove that prohibition. From my reading of newspaper reports of what those um, uh, gentlemen are talking about, they're saying that once it's gone, it's gone. However, what I would say, just based on reading the relevant bit of the European law combined with the answer to that parliamentary question is it's not. It's frozen in time. You look at the established principle at the time the directive came in. Shane Goldman is with me. I mean, this is... 
it may be a legal thing we're arguing about, but it has enormous political consequences. There are huge political consequences in relation to Irish water, and I'm not sure if the various parties have actually thought through what those political consequences are. I mean, I think this is an interesting story about the legal issue. Ultimately, I don't think it'll hinge on you a don't? legal issue. I don't, because, uh, I mean, I'm They're not sure... They're salivating down in the law library at the prospect <laughs> of defeat. I, I don't know if, if Darren is right that it's at the time when the derogation came in or if the other two S, the senior councils are, are correct. Uh, they say, you know, it's like you can't get the, 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 the toothpaste back in the tube. Once the derogation goes, it's gone for... I don't know. But I do know how Europe works. And I'd be surprised if there was a government that was hell-bent on getting rid of water charges that they couldn't secure agreement for that at European level. But I think, so I'd almost park that. I think the issues are more fundamental. And for me, the massive elephant in the room is the 650 staff directly employed by Irish Water. I'm really curious, and I think, you know, people, the anti-water charges people, be they, you know, the Sinn right, Féin right. or Paul Murphy or Brendan Ogle, they have to be asked this question. What are you going to do with the 650 staff directly employed well, by uh, Irish uh, Water? But what about, I'm, I'm much more simple about this. I pay that. So what about my well, the, the, money? I mean, I'm that, not that going to get That is another massive issue. Okay. Now the, the people who've paid their water charges, yeah. uh, do you turn around to them and say, tough luck, you're the mug who obeyed the law and yeah. we're, we're going to let the others okay. off scot-free? Now, my guest uh, and key guy in all this is, is Darren Lahan, who's barrister in the studio with me. For the purposes of information, uh, you have stood in local government elections yep. for Fianna Fáil. So are you just giving us the Fianna Fáil line here, or is this... Uh, that, so first question, is this... Uh, a neutral opinion in this regard. I've no brief to speak on behalf of Fianna Fáil in this. So that's, it's just based on my reading of it. But just... Okay. In, in but can I just... Yeah. Following up on, like, Shane's point, Dan... Can you can you follow through on the kind of worries that Shane has? What do you think will happen? Well, I suppose there's, there's two points. First, the point that Shane raises, which is a very important one, is the risk that there would be an infringement action by Europe or that Europe would say yeah. you can't do this. The answer to that is no infringement proceedings were taken by Europe against us in the period where we were applying this derogation. But at the same time, they did take infringement proceedings against us. You can't do that when we, in our interpretation of the law here, said that this European law only covered drinking water. They said, no, it's much broader than that. So they're keeping an eye on us and they didn't take infringement action against that. The second thing which Shane mentioned there, which was in relation to all of the employees of Irish Water. And again, it's not just again in recent history where because we were tightening our belts nationally, we got rid of a lot of kind of state bodies or we merged bodies. So there's there are, uh, how would I say, precedents there in terms of carrying over staff. I know one example that pe- a lot of people are familiar with is like, you know, when they set up the HSC and the various yeah. staff and the health boards and stuff like that. Similarly, when we set up Irish Water, a lot of staff who were working in the various local authorities around the country who were the water service providers under the old regime carried over into Irish Water. So, you know, those issues in terms of protecting people's employment uh, and any rights that they have. You, but the problem in this case is you're going backwards. How, uh, if fine, it would say the health board's going to HSE. That's fine. You get, you, everyone keeps their jobs. But if you were to go back from the HSE, what happens to the head of the HSE? What happens to the director of communications at the HSE? And it's the same with Irish Water. 
I don't think you can credibly say this 650 staff will all go back to local authorities because many of them are completely newly created job. I don't think the local authorities have the capability to take those staff. I also don't think, by the way, that the local authorities have the capability to develop a national investment plan for our water network. And if they have... Why didn't they do it in the last 20 or 30 years? But if it's as simple, Darren Land, barrister, uh, and my expert in, in this studio, if it's as simple as we read in the paper this morning, that you can't go back, your colleagues who have a different view to you, mm. if they're right, then surely the government, who in a, you could almost say, and, and this is also because you've been interested in politics, you could, you could tackle this yeah. question, that the government, who you might even say was brought down by water charges, why they didn't say in the campaign, listen, this isn't us at all, this is them. And then since, when, when Fianna Fáil and other parties are saying, this is a red line issue, if you don't fix this, we're not going to talk to you, why didn't they say, well, you we can't talk about this because it's not an issue. Yeah, I suppose just from a political point of view, the yeah. interesting thing about this is we're all presuming, if you apply the problem analogy, at the moment we have a problem because people are unhappy with the way in which Irish water is operating and water charges. Uh, people are presuming that there will be a problem on a European level if you get rid of water charges or if you do certain things to Irish water. But they're doing that in the absence of there actually being a problem. So you've got to approach it in steps, I would say. But the big issue, I think, politically is in terms of the funding because... One of the, the, there were three main reasons why water charges came in. The first was we were losing over 40% of the water through the pipes because the pipes were antiquated through lack of funding. The second thing was uh, there was an infringement case taken against Europe, the one I referred to there, I think, in relation to you know our strict definition of what um, was covered in terms of water. And the third thing was the EU IMF agreement. And I don't think anyone would be happy if as part of the discussion on water charges and scrapping water charges, we went back to where we were. I think politically it has to be funded. And again, if they scrapped, if the government chose politically, and I think they could legally, to scrap water charges in the morning, they still have to fund uh, a sustainable system of water. Okay, or be infri- be yeah, isn't law. our distinguished barrister got to the nub of the point? Yes. Almost at the end of he the has. discussion. He has. That for the people who are saying scrap it, the question is, how are you going to fund it? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think that is absolutely key. And that's a more important legal like legal opinion than the opinion because, of whether you because, can or cannot. And, and let's be clear what has happened in the past and why the, the water service or the water network was on the verge of collapse. And those people who say, oh, water is a human right. Why weren't they giving out when water the water system was on the verge of collapse? But what happened was every time the purse, the public purse got tightened, we stopped spending on water infrastructure. And the advantage of having a state utility is that will not happen. So if you do not have a state uh, utility, if times get tough again, how do you ensure that investment in water doesn't drop off? There's just one other very quick point. If Irish water is abolished, then investment in infrastructure comes back on the state balance sheet. And that is going to have an impact on the budget okay. next year and the year after that and the year after there'll be less money to spend on other services. Do you think finally Darren Lahan as a barrister do you think this deal is actually going to be played out in the courts or not? Uh, it depends it depends what actually happens but in terms of reorganising it I mean in terms of fisheries which would be another big aspect of the Irish economy which is governed by European law largely you know we set up bodies like the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority down in Cork which are operating independently of the minister 
but in a kind of a sub role to the minister. So we have lots of bodies like this which do their jobs cheaply and effectively. Uh, and, you know, you're, it you're talking billions, right. though, for water. That's the difference. All right. Yeah. OK, this is next. Um, although I'm inclined to agree with Des in Dublin, Irish water and their expensive legal opinion. This is what drives me mad. All right. And my thanks to my guest, Darren Lahan, barrister, and uh, of course, Shane Coleman, uh, News Talks uh, political advisor. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by a Galway-based farmer, food campaigner, Fergal Anderson. Fergal, welcome to the programme. Hi, George. Thanks very much. You have an interesting idea about social welfare helping local farm produce. What's your idea? Yeah, well, well, basically what we're trying to talk about is to set up like an enabling environment for local food production. So that would mean supporting local food producers directly, but also the idea of sort of giving a credit to uh, social welfare recipients that would allow them to purchase the food directly from those local producers. So on two sides, one side you're going to be setting up helping local producers establish themselves, and on the other side you're actually sort of creating a market instantaneously for that local production. So it should give a big stimulus to local production. That's just an idea. So. Yeah, um, so what? Instead of getting 180 a week, you would get 160 a week and say a voucher for 20 euro, is it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't want to go into the details of it. That's not my job. I, I suppose I would see it more as an additional uh, payment as opposed to kind of a supplement payment because you don't want to force people into making decisions uh, like that, you know. But it, it's based around the reason that, that I came up with that was to talk about the kind of uh, the problem with local food and organic food and very often uh, the healthier food options are, are, are more expensive. And and it, it shouldn't be something that's elitist uh, in society. Like we should all have access to good quality locally pr- produced food. So uh, that's just one way of, of doing that. I mean, there's lots of other policy initiatives that you could take. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I hear where you're coming from, but you did specifically talk about 20 euro a week social welfare. Yeah. I mean, so... Sure, yeah. Yeah, so what's your plan? <laughs> well, I'm a farmer, so my plan is to is to keep on growing the veg I do in my field. I mean, I'm not a government minister or a member of a policy group. If if there was a way of developing the idea further, I'd love to see it happen. But I mean, we've had there's precedent for it. I mean, we have we've had butter vouchers in the past in Ireland. So like, I mean, it's it, the idea of of kind of providing a uh, a supplement that would uh, that would that would allow people to sort of purchase food locally isn't isn't on no, unheard of um so i suppose my my idea would be a broad set of policy measures which well, would which would stimulate local production and at the same time ensure that that local production doesn't become something which is needed now it's interesting that you say the idea of giving people money to buy locally isn't unheard of well, i it is unheard of to me so <laughs> where where would i go to get this 20 quid for argument's sake well, I mean, it's unheard of period in Ireland. I think there's examples uh, in in the US where, strangely enough, where where people receive uh, food stamps, they're allowed to use those food stamps to to purchase local production. For example, they're not forced to use those the food stamps in. Uh, so they can, you can use your food stamps in the local markets. You can participate in a community supported agriculture venture with your food stamps. That's in places like California. So. These, these kind of things that we're talking about, locally produced food, stimulating local production, there's discussions happening all over the world about how to, how to, how to make that happen. 
Um, and I suppose what I'm trying to do is kick off a little discussion about that. Now. All right. Well, before um, you go, why is organic food or locally produced food, you did say it was more expensive. Why is it more expensive? Well, very often it's more labor intensive. You know, there's more work, a lot of work goes into it. And I, I mean, it, there's a quality aspect there. I think when you when you have a higher quality production, very often you it requires more labor, it requires more uh, more work. But I think, I mean, my response, the way to deal with that is to have, I think, is to have more small-scale production uh, rather than more large-scale production. And to have farms that are kind of integrated into society as opposed to uh, a factory or a large mechanized farm, which isn't so much uh, based inside the community. So it's a kind of holistic picture. It's a broader picture. We have to sort of look at all the different elements and say, well, what do we want out of our, our food system? Because it's something that we create ourselves. It's something that the government has stimulated to develop in certain ways. And if we want to see it develop in, in, in ways which we think are better, for example, that Irish people would have access to high-quality local food, then we, we, we need to think about the policy uh, policies that would be required to stimulate that. So that's the kind of discussion I'm trying to kick off. And Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully you have. Uh, my guest, Fergal Anderson, Galway based farmer and food campaigner. Well, um, he, Fergal mentioned that in America, of course, they have food stamps. He's absolutely right, which are then spent by uh, people on American social welfare to buy food. Uh, Michael Graham is an expert on these matters uh, because he, he has, has studied social welfare a lot, its values uh, and disadvantages as far as he's concerned. Um, so, uh, knowing that uh, they have this system in, in America, I talked to Michael before the program and I asked him how did it all work over there. So here's the deal on food stamps and why the premise of them stinks. The issue of helping low-income families, particularly working families, which make up most of the people who get food stamps in America, with a little help with food and basics is absolutely great. The vast majority of Americans support it. You work every week and maybe you're a low-skill worker. You don't want your kids to go hungry because you don't make enough money as you're maybe learning a trade. But Because it's government money, people are tempted to get involved, like using the food stamps as a lever to force you to buy, say, produce from local producers, which you would never buy in your grocery store because it's wildly more expensive. Or, as people keep trying to do here in the United States, restricting what food stamp recipients can buy. No sugary soda for you because we're paying for your food. Ah, 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 stay out of the candy aisle with those food stamps. It's not good for you. Hey, what are you doing with that big old pile of pork chops over there? Too much fat for you. And that's the problem. When you simply let people walk into a store and buy what they want, everybody, everything's fine. But once the government gets to get you on the wagon, They get to decide which way the wagon goes. And if they don't like what you're buying, then they can take it off of the list of approved food stamp items. But it's totally different when you say, oh, these are food stamps, but you can't buy all the food. You can't buy that can of cheap chili that you and your kids happen to like that's really inexpensive. No, no, no. You have to buy the locally handcrafted kale and arugula leaves and lovingly bring them to your home at a wildly expensive price. And oh, by the way, you don't even like arugula and didn't want to eat it in the first place. But here's the bottom line. When you give money away, people find a way to get it. In the United States, we have a thriving industry of guys who have uh, EBT cards. That's how we do food stamps. It's like a little credit card for the dole. And they stand outside grocery stores and they say, look, 
I got $100 on my EBT card. If you'll give me $40 cash to buy booze and drugs, you can have the $100 EBT card and go in and buy yourself $100 worth of food. It's a fantastic deal for people who want to scam the system. You can tell people all they want, all day long, you must buy locally grown Irish potatoes and corned beef. They'll still find a way to turn that into liquor and cigarettes. Well, that was some Michael Graham. Actually, do you have any doubt but that he's right? Uh, do you have any doubt that uh, a system where uh, people for generations have been used to every week getting cash, which is what social welfare is, and now instead of getting cash, they're handed um, a credit card that can only be used to buy food in local supermarket or whatever. Do you think they're not going to try and turn it into cash? Uh, Michael may be extreme talking about drink and fags, but the point is they're going to want to turn it into something that they want to buy. Also, uh, so uh, Fergal Anderson was there, who's the farmer in Galway, who um, had this idea. Uh, Fergal, you've heard Michael. Yeah, I did, I did. He was very enthusiastic and very articulate. But I think there's a major point which he's failing to address, and that is that most of the food, the food stamps, as he mentioned, it's a card. They can only be spent in supermarkets and in shops. And so when you're accessing local food, you can't actually buy it uh, with, a food, with a food stamp card. Now, that, the only place I know that they've done that is in California. And it was a big struggle to allow people to just have access to the local food. So actually, the system is skewed completely against people accessing local food production. It's not that they're trying to force them to do it. So just to clarify a little bit, because I think he was a little bit... Uh, overzealous in his uh, in his critique there. I mean, the, the model isn't perfect, and I'm not actually saying that the American model is absolutely at all the way we need, need to go in Ireland. But I think there's there's a certain there's a discussion which needs to be happened. It needs to be held there about how people access local food. I mean, uh, yeah, but I just just there were a couple of things. Um, yeah. For instance, I I go to Super Value um, yeah. in Dean's Grange, and there's a there are particular corners where everything there is produced by local suppliers, and it's really well supported mm-hmm. by the Super Value chain. And, that, and, and, and well, that's in that Super Value, and we've we've done consultations because these these proposals don't all come out of my own head. They're coming out of a process of consultation with the Irish Food Sovereignty Movement. And one of the issues that we found when we talked to people in, in low-income areas and people in disadvantaged areas, what well, there's no access. And that the only place that they can actually go and buy food is in the spa or in the centre. And actually, there's, there's, there's no local market. There's no farmer's market. Those, those kind of like high-quality stores, delicatessens and super yeah. values with high-quality local produce are aimed very much at, at, at people who have disposable income. Right. But the other thing I thought was good, I was in Marks and Spencer's yesterday mm-hmm. and at the milk counter, they had a big sign in which they said that we we negotiate prices with farmers for milk that reflects a fair price for the farmer. Because obviously a lot of farming groups talk about how the major chains screw them in terms of things like milk look, or look, food. Or nearly whatever. every farmer in the country sells their produce below the cost of production. And they receive a subsidy which supplements their income. And the reality, that's the reality of it. So everything that you have bought in the supermarket has been subsidized at some point along the, the, the food chain. What all I'm talking about is say, the only things that aren't subsidized that are left completely at the will of the market are the local producers. The likes of ourselves here who are producing our five acres, vegetables, community supported agriculture, small scale production. We're not on the radar. If you're a big scale producer, 
there's a good chance that you're getting you're getting a, a subsidy and a payment, and most of the stuff that's in the supermarket is already subsidized. Uh-huh. So not, it's, it's not it's not like a, it's not like a crazy idea. Uh, the idea of subsidizing food production, it's it's just a crazy idea. The idea of subsidizing food that is actually local, locally right. produced, and that is healthy and is, it has a positive benefit to the population. All right, Fergal, thank you so much, Fergal uh, Anderson, our farmer and food campaigner, and we certainly have to find a way um, of of uh, supporting that kind of activity. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, a woman in Clondalkin is selling breast milk for 32 euro a pint. What is this all about? I asked Dr. Kira Kelly, general practitioner and broadcaster. Dr. Kelly, uh, what's this all about? Well, I suppose the story that broke today in some of the tabloids was about uh, a woman in Clondalkin who was uh, selling breast milk. Um, and I suppose it's a, it's a bit of a curio for people, so that that's why it's made the news. And she's selling it for quite a lot of money, from from what I can gather. It's a, it's, it's 32 euros a pint, and she's freezing it and sort of sending it around the world. I, I suppose why this is of concern to the likes of me, George, is that this is a, a, breast milk is a blood product. And um, as a blood product... It can transmit infections and all that kind of thing. And because this is raw breast milk, so it's unpasteurized, um, people are at risk of uh, contracting blood-borne infections from this type of well, sale. Hold a minute now. What about all the babies who are happily sucking it away every day? They're not getting infections. Well, that's a little bit different because that's well. your mother's milk and you've already come through your mother's blood supply anyway. So, so say a newborn infant actually has more or less the same blood in its okay. veins as, as the it. mother does. Who's paying 32 euro a pint for it? Well, she would say that who is paying 32 euros a pint for it is fitness people. Bodybuilders. Bodybuilders and people like that. Um, it's hard to know. There are, there are also fetishes, of course, surrounding this type of thing, George. And um, I don't know who's buying it, but obviously she has a market for it and she's selling it. I, I suppose the main concern is not why they're buying it, maybe, but the fact that they are putting themselves at risk. The, the reason if I were a bodybuilder I would juice it is because it might have more protein, more carbohydrate or whatever that is better than cow's milk. Is yeah. it better than cow's well, milk? Well, well, actually, in some ways, yes, because breast milk from humans is designed for humans, whereas the normal for what we do is sort of uh, culturally is to drink cow's milk, which isn't quite designed for humans. Do you know what I mean? So, so we drink a milk that isn't actually the milk of our of our young or the, or the milk yeah. for our young. So, so yeah, there's nothing wrong with human breast milk. In fact, it is the best source of nutrition for your baby. Um, whether or not you need it as a source of protein, there's lots of other sources of protein if you wanted to have uh, right, a bodybuilder. Yeah, but, but you could make a shake with this. You could kind of add pineapple juice or something to breast milk and you make a smoothie and then you have that in the morning before you do your barbell uh, curls. And and could, bre- but, but, but the truth could be said, you could put a spoonful of protein protein, whey powder into other types of milk as well. It's not necessary to take protein from breast milk in order to get protein into your diet. And this is certainly something where there is risk associated with it. All right, but they studied a few of these, not this lady's breast milk, but other breast milk sold to bodybuilders, and they discovered that there was staphylococcal and staphylococcal and salmonella. Is all that stuff in it? Of course. 
the milk that we drink, when you go up and buy a, a pint of Avonmore or whatever in, in, in the supermarket, has been pasteurized, George, so that the naturally occurring bacteria that occur from the cow's skin and all that kind of thing have all been eradicated. Um, that's why it's, it's, it's something, you know, that you, 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 it's safe to drink. This is unpasteurized. This is raw milk that has some, simply okay. been frozen. So, so no, any, any bacteria that exist within it will remain within it. When I was a kid, the, the dairyman used to come to the house with like a barrel of milk yeah. and he used to have a little metal container which was a half a pint or whatever and my mother had a jug. Yeah. Now that was all unpasteurized yes, and I'm here to talk about it you so are. it can't be that dangerous. You are, but you have to remember that the mortality rates when you're talking back in, in the day were considerably higher. And the reason they brought in pasteurization was to eradicate infection. And for example, in countries like France, where some of the soft cheeses remain unpasteurized, it's possible to contract things like listeria and things from eating cheese. So there are infections that can be passed through these types of products. All right, Kira Kelly, thank you for joining me. We'll be talking to you on Monday with the Right Hook Health Checkup. Uh, thanks for joining me, thanks, Kira. George. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.